This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, welcome back to New Books and Anthropology, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Adam Bobek, and I'm a PhD candidate in cultural anthropology at the University of Leipzig. I am absolutely delighted today to welcome Professor Matthew C. Watson to the show. Professor Watson is Associate Professor of Anthropology at Mount Holyoke College, and today we're discussing his new book, Afterlives of Affect, Science, Religion, and an Edgewalker Spirit, which was published in 2020 with Duke University Press. Professor Watson, welcome to the show. Hi, Adam. It's a pleasure to be here. Could you tell us a little bit about the genesis of this book? Um, So it's nice to have an opportunity to talk about the book. Uh, It's been uh, a real uh, passion project for me uh, across the the past few years. Um, It has a a long genesis. (laughs) It was in the making for um, a long time. I um, uh, wrote a dissertation in 2010 uh, that was a science studies-based approach to the history of Maya hieroglyphic decipherment. Um, So I was a graduate student um, who turned from archaeology to the history of archaeology. I had done some undergraduate work uh, in archaeology and some undergraduate work in cultural anthropology, uh, and I ended up working uh, in my my graduate career with a, um, a a Mesoamericanist archaeologist and historian of archaeology, Susan Gillespie, um, who pointed me uh, to the history of Maya hieroglyphic decipherment as an area that was sort of understudied uh, in terms of critical perspectives on the history of anthropology. Right. Uh, there's been a lot written about um, Maya studies, and Maya studies is very important to the development of U.S. anthropology. Uh, but there hadn't been a lot written about about hieroglyphic decipherment. And at, at the time, I was working through theoretical perspectives in my coursework as a graduate student, uh, and perhaps the most one of the most consequential courses that I took was a was a science studies seminar, an anthropology of science seminar, uh, with Stacy Langwick that introduced me to a new way to think about epistemology, a new way to think about knowledge. And I was thinking about historical knowledge um, through through other frames and other kinds of perspectives and trying to get a handle on um, how to think about the history of Maya studies. And I decided uh, at the time in conversation with Susan uh, and others that it would be exciting to think about the history of Maya hieroglyphic decipherment, something uh, that unfolded mostly in the 1970s and 1980s, though it continues today and had had precedence before that thinking about this moment, this much lauded, touted moment in the development of Maya studies through a science studies lens. What happens if we take the ideas of thinkers like Donna Haraway and, and Bruno Latour, um, uh, Andrew Pickering and others, uh, and apply these kind of systems-oriented, complexity-oriented perspectives to um, an object of knowledge that's not exactly science, right? Uh, that is was in many ways on the margins of science, right? So my hieroglyphic decipherment started in art history uh, development uh, in the 1940s, 50s, 60s uh, in art history, and and by the the 80s was a, a linguistic practice. So uh, it sort of scientized itself in ways uh, in in the ways that many um, 20th century disciplines that turn to language and linguistics do, right? So I, I was thinking about 
uh, hieroglyphic decipherment through the lens of science studies as this um, uh, field of knowledge on the edge of um, kind of humanistic and scientific uh, thought. Um, and what I found as I got into this, I, I was sort of working through um, the history of Maya studies, Maya hieroglyphic studies, or epigraphy, as it's sometimes called, um, uh, through archival work um, and through some ethnographic work. Uh, and I found this very small, bounded community of experts um, who, by the 90s, had become deeply invested in enshrining their own internal history of their field. Uh, and what I was trying to do was sort of to uh, to kind of break open their own narrative of self. What does it mean if we tell a different story about the history of the field? This is why the work to me felt like and is ethnography and anthropological, right? I'm, I, 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 I took an object that was very close to, to the world that I was coming from in anthropology, but I wanted still to defamiliarize it in ways and to tell a different story, to tell a story that wasn't just reiterating uh, the, the narrative within Maya studies. And the narrative within Maya studies about decipherment uh, really takes the developments of the 1970s and 80s with the precedence of um, the work of of a couple of scholars, uh, Russian and American before them, uh, as these fundamental moments and and tells a a story of of a progress, this this clear progress up to this moment of a kind of scientific revolution in the decipherment of Maya glyphs. Um, So they talk about the the this kind of earlier history in which all of these scholars got pretty much everything wrong. And then by the 1970s or in the 1970s, all of a sudden they get everything right. Um, and I, I wanted to understand how they got everything right or what it meant in their own ways of thinking uh, 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 to, to, to really understand uh, in a fundamental and deep way what ancient Maya writing is. Um, and at the same time, so I'm taking these science studies perspectives. I'm also, as a graduate student, my last two years of graduate school, I taught six uh, sections of introduction to linguistic anthropology, uh, the, a fall, spring, summer, fall, spring, summer. So by the, I was writing my dissertation and teaching uh, an intro language, uh, you know, linguistic anthropology course coming from a place where I had some semiotics background, but not a deep understanding of linguistic anthropology at the time. Uh, and I was becoming attached to some of the ideas in linguistic anthropology, like um, um, Michael Silverstein's construction of language ideology, perhaps perhaps most centrally. Um, other perspectives too, uh, um, Michelle Rosaldo's critique of speech act theory was very valuable to me. Um, a, a critique that's pretty rooted in ideas about language ideology, an argument that uh, the way we think about what language is is determined by our our own systems of attitudes and systems of beliefs. So I was coming from a perspective that was rethinking the history of of anthropology, archaeology, art history through science studies, influenced by language ideology, challenging the internal narrative of what what Maya hieroglyphic um, hieroglyph experts advocated at the time. Um, so uh, I was. Opening up those those problems, uh, finished this dissertation, um, assembling the ancient public science in, in the decipherment of Maya hieroglyphs, and um, published some articles out of that work, some science studies based work, a piece in American Anthropologist and um, a piece in Social Studies of Science that are very science studies works. Right, the piece in American Anthropologist looks at the these workshops on hieroglyphic writing from the 1980s that were held at the University of Texas Austin and the way that the um, teachers of those workshops, including the figure who becomes central to my later book project, uh, Linda Sheely, uh, cultivated in a broad public um, an attachment to ancient Maya glyphs, an attachment to the idea of deciphering them. Um, and I published a piece that was on a controversy over the age of death of a 7th century Maya lord, Pakal, uh, in Social Studies of Science, uh, which is um, a controversy a piece. Uh, there's a tradition in science studies of looking at scientific controversies as spaces where where the implications and underlying cultural, um, uh, you know, norms uh, of scientific practice of science and action become exposed, become more obvious, right? So I was, I was doing those kinds of studies and and working from a position that was. 
pretty critical of the politics of hieroglyphic decipherment. Um, hieroglyphic decipherment is is a part of a broad um, institution of Maya studies uh, that's deeply attached to both systems of funding in, in the United States. Big funders like the Rockefellers and the Carnegies uh, funded, you know, mid-century, early mid-century Maya studies um, because they had economic interests in, in Mexico. Uh, and um, I was trying to think about this from a perspective that that uh, told you know this other this other story. What if we think critically about the ways that those the, these scholars coming from these um, highly funded major U.S. institutions? What if we think critically about how they they reconstruct the ancient Maya and what the consequences of that are uh, in the political present? Um, there's a tradition in Maya studies of thinking uh, along those lines. Um, you know, running back to at least the 1980s, a, a light critical tradition within Maya studies, but it is itself a pretty bounded community. So I was working out um, these problems and, and trying to, to think carefully uh, from a science studies perspective about what Maya hieroglyphic decipherment was. And I made these arguments that, that uh, through language ideology frame, uh, to some extent, not as technically as the, the real linguistic anthropologists, um, but I, I made these arguments uh, that this is a kind of reduction of Maya writing. Right, that the the beliefs that the that um, epigraphers, hieroglyph experts have about uh, writing are pretty different from uh, what ancient Maya scribes a uh, thousand years ago, right, thought about what they were doing, right. So I tried to say this is a kind of, and I did argue that this is a reduction of um, uh, a complex aesthetic form that is both art and writing uh, to a particular narrow set of ideas about what writing is. So I, I, I adopted what one might think about as a somewhat paranoid position, a, a, not a consp- conspiratorial paranoid position, but a strong theory, right? Um, challenging uh, some of the terms and political implications of hieroglyphic decipherment, which r- ramified throughout the, the, the political worlds and the economic world of tourism within Mexico and Guatemala. Uh, and, and I think not always to, to a great, great effects, right. Uh, to complex ambivalent effects that, that post-colonial science studies is, is keen to pick up. So I was working through those problems, I was writing this critical work. Um, and I was, was reading, uh, experimental ethnography and I was reading, uh, in, in affect theory, uh, I was finding myself, um, taken, uh, by, um, the works of of thinkers like Eve Sedgwick and Katie Stewart and, and started to ask myself about 2012, uh, whether it might be more valuable to write um, an experimental uh, and weak theoretical, to use that that term, there's strong theory and weak theory in, in parts of affect studies. Affect studies advocates sometimes that we work from weak theory rather than a strong theory that determines our objects, but instead that kind of feels ethnographically or otherwise with the texts and people that we that we, that we think about. Um, so I was trying to think with some of their ideas about uh, affect, to think about how decipherment itself was a site of affect, uh, of heightened affect, right? So I started to think about these amateurs, the public that Linda Sheely drew in, not from the position of trying to critique decipherment, but from the position of trying to follow the amateurs into their spaces of heightened attachment to Sheely and to the ancient Maya, right? Um, And that's what really motivated me uh, to write this book. it, some of the early writing was also in conversation with um, kind of the limits of animal studies. The first chapter that I that I wrote uh, was published as an article first in Cultural Critique, um, uh, the Animal Anthropology of Linda Sheely's Spirits, which becomes Animals in the book, uh, and it's a, uh, an examination of this core figure, this artist and art historian, Linda Sheely, um, through her attachment to uh, the companion, uh, companion, companion at rabbit, um, an animal spirit companion, her appropriation or adoption of a quasi Maya ways of thinking about uh, attachment to animal others through a spiritual frame, um, a, a problematic one. 
uh, in ways, uh, but also um, a very uh, sincere uh, set of, of of practices in terms of kind of reconstructing her artistic and critical self. So I was thinking with her and about the limits of animal studies by thinking with her. And I found her to be a really extraordinary guide uh, to, to, to offer a, a different set of ideas than what I had taken from her work before. I had photographed her letters. Uh, so Linda Sheely died in 1998. Um, and I photographed uh, her letters at the table of her widower's home. Um, which was quite an extraordinary experience as a graduate student. Um, uh, it's a different experience than most archival research, right? Uh, because most archival research takes place in archives, and this was actually like working with somebody's personal papers in a in a private setting. And and I, um, I you know, I, I I became increasingly attached uh, at, at about 2012 to following. Linda Sheely into the world of of the ancient Maya in what I think is a more low theoretical, um, sincerely ethnographic frame. So the the purpose of this book was to write um, a, a kind of experimental ethnography that centered Linda Sheely as a figure, as a charismatic figure within the field. Um, uh, so that um, she drew me in, uh, and this book was my effort to contribute to I think a world that she helped to create. Maybe there are some listeners who don't know who Linda Sheely is. So maybe could you give a little bit of an introduction, an introduction to Linda Sheely? Sure, sure. Um, so Sheely was an, an artist first uh, in terms of her professional trajectory. She was uh, from the, the suburbs of Nashville, Tennessee, uh, and born in the 40s. Um, and she uh, was a, a surrealist painter. Um, she briefly uh, uh, sought, uh, you know, tried to pursue a, um, a graduate career in in uh, in in literary criticism, uh, but found it to be, uh, in Linda's words, nitpicking bullshit. Um, and Linda uh, uh, became uh, kind of returned after that brief. A graduate stint to her um, uh, undergraduate institution, the University of Cincinnati, where she finished an MFA in surrealist art. Uh, she was a biomorphic surrealist painter. Uh, think of Miro or Klee. Um, and she, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, she was employed as a as a, a, a painting uh, um, uh, instructor. Um, assistant professor, actually, at, at the University of South Alabama. Her first job out of graduate school um, uh, was at the University of South Alabama. And uh, because of her proximity to Mexico uh, and connections that her husband, David Chile, an architect, had with uh, archaeologists working in Mexico, she uh, began to travel to Mexico. Um, so she went to uh, the Maya area um, a number of times uh, in the early 70s. She traveled to uh, a particularly important uh, ancient Maya site uh, called Palenque, which is in the northeastern corner of Chiapas uh, in 1970. And there she encountered uh, an, uh, another artist. Uh, Merle Green Robertson, uh, and Robertson had been trained as a, a landscape painter, a Western landscape painter, uh, but had become an art historian and uh, had set up shop in Palenque where she was um, working on, on producing a corpus of rubbings uh, of the, the iconography uh, and inscriptions, architectural inscriptions. So she was working with a particular technique that involved uh, reproducing inscriptions through, through uh, rubbings. And, and Linda Sheely came to apprentice with, with uh, Robertson. Um, she came to work very closely with Robertson at, at Palenque. Um, and she became um, enamored with the ancient Maya, with the romance of the ancient Mayas, which is an old story, uh, uh, cutting back to at least the 19th century and travel writers um, uh, becoming enamored by the romance of the, the Maya archaeological sites and, and artifacts and, and architecture. Um, so she uh, became attached to this kind of site of Palenque in ways that, that um, were were at once historical and in some sense, as my work starts to think through uh, in this book, a, a pretty religious set of attachments or a pretty spiritual set of attachments. Um, so she was working with Robertson. She 
uh, wasn't thrilled as a, a, a painting instructor at the University of South Alabama. Uh, and she, um, in, in the late 70s, decided to pursue, uh, after she'd already established herself in the field um, uh, through a series of, of uh, roundtable meetings, uh, these public workshops in Palenque and, and some publications, she pursued a PhD in art history. At, at UT Austin uh, in the late 70s, got it done in just, I think, three years, um, uh, and then started to teach uh, uh, Maya art history, art history and, and, and Maya studies uh, at UT Austin. There she founded this series of public workshops, uh, originally called the Workshops on Maya Hieroglyphic Writing and later called the Maya Meetings, um, uh, that became very popular in the 1980s. Right. So so Sheely um, uh, was teaching a broad public who were uh, attracted to the kind of romance of the ancient Maya, uh, how to uh, understand uh, the writing system in ways that really cultivated in them or kind of diffused in this public audience a sense of of heightened affect, a sense of of profound excitement. Right. Um, So Sheely was this animated figure herself, a very charismatic um, uh, teacher and, and professor and scholar and thinker, right? So she drew around her uh, this large kind of community of, um, uh, you know, uh, everyday people, people with all kinds of jobs coming from, uh, from all kinds of corners of their lives who chose to spend their vacations uh, by traveling to Austin for a week every spring to participate or a few days, a few days and then later a week to participate in this workshop and they, they developed a community uh, around this workshop. Um, so uh, she, she became this very uh, compelling uh, figure uh, within the field. She wrote a series of popular books, um, uh, Forest of Kings uh, with David Friedell and, and Maya Cosmos with David Friedell and the writer Joy Parker uh, and, and, and several others um, uh, that, really synthesized popular writing and scholarship. She's remarkable in this respect, um, that she was writing uh, these these books that were at once po- popular. And if you read the footnotes of, of you know, Forest of Kings, they're, they're, making, they're making pretty original, profoundly original at times, scholarly claims. Um, so she was, was producing through these workshops and these popular press books, a community of devoted amateurs around the world of ancient Maya writing, uh, decipherment, right? Um, so she became this popular core of the field in the 1980s, uh, as it was in some ways professionalizing. Uh, she she has been called the last amateur anthropologist, which I think is kind of silly because they're still amateur anthropologists, amateur Mayanist, uh, Maya hieroglyph expert, or high, uh, amateur epigrapher. Um, so she wrote uh, these popular books. She had these popular workshops. Um, and, um, she, uh, um, uh, you know, played an, an integral role in transforming Maya studies broadly in, uh, drawing from the work of Mayanist epigraphers like Evan Vogt, an argument that the Maya had for thousands of years retained this core kind of set of cultural beliefs, Right. Um, a pretty a pretty dubious argument from an anthropological perspective, uh, but one that was persuasive and compelling uh, to an audience at that time. Um, so Sheely became this this very charismatic center of the field, and um, she tragically died died at age 55, died young of pancreatic cancer. Um, she died in, in 1998. Um, so, um, my, my work started, you know, on this, this project a little less than a, a decade later, uh, to think, uh, about, uh, what the kind of public world and the scholarly world and the, the, the social world of ancient Maya studies and Maya hieroglyphic decipherment was. And in this, the title of the book is Afterlives of Affect, Science, Religion, and an Edgewalker Spirit. And you've touched on this a, a little bit without actually using the word. Can you talk about what edgewalking is? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, in fact, it's it's fun, but also hard for me. Uh, so she, the edgewalker is Sheely's term, right? Uh, she called herself an edgewalker, Um uh, I, I'll, I'll pull the passage if you don't mind if I read a passage. Um, she, uh, she said in a, a documentary that, that's called Edgewalker, uh, 
uh, made about her and, and released, if I recall, after her, after her death. She says, there are people who are centralists and there are people who walk on the edge. And I think it's the edge walkers that continually push the box and push the shape at the edge. And I think they're the people that make fields change. I've always deliberately chosen to be an edge walker, knowing that my work is going to be wrong. But I also change the nature of the field and change its directions and get other people to take on different kinds of questions that I would never be able to do if I was a centralist. So here in this kind of documentary produced at the end of, of Sheely's life, she's contrasting her own work um, as somebody who came into art history and Maya studies from the position of being um, an artist first, uh, also a woman, right, uh, in a field that was dominated by men. She was around other important women, Merle Green Robertson and, and other important uh, women um, art historians. Uh, but the, the, the dominant forces in Maya studies remained deeply masculine. Archaeology was a deeply masculine space at that time. So Sheely, and I imagine, I'm not a historian of art history, but I imagine that art history was as well. Um, and she's thinking about herself here at, toward the end of her life uh, as somebody who um, was willing to take risks, was willing to be wrong, uh, was willing to push the boundaries of a field, uh, was willing not to reproduce its center, uh, but to, to approach it from the edge, to approach it from the margins. Uh, I think it's hard not to think about Austin when you think about edge walking. Austin in the 70s and the 80s, late 70s and the 1980s, um, the kind of really weird Austin, like she, she had come from a, a place, you know, that wasn't the center of Maya studies. Centers of Maya studies were, you know, places like Harvard um, and to some extent Tulane. Uh, you know, there were there were these institutional centers of Maya studies, uh, and Sheely was was not of them. Uh, she was um, uh, an experimenter. She was uh, um, an, an edge pusher. She was a risk taker. Um, and she was willing to be wrong. And I, I sort of love this willingness to be wrong. I think that anthropology at its best uh, is willing to be wrong, is willing to take risks and willing to be wrong. And I think it's also really, there's a moment in the book where I call anthropology, uh, because some of this book becomes a kind of meditation on anthropology. Uh, and I, I call the book um, uh, The Amateur Science of Marginal Magic, right? And I think about uh, Sheely as being this um, this kind of... Uh, kind of lover of the ancient Maya. Amateur comes from, from love, right? From Amare, right? This lover of the ancient Maya uh, who was, was willing in very popular books to push the boundaries of argumentation. I'm writing these days about um, uh, Evan Vogt and the Harvard Chiapas Project. And, and, and there's, a, <clears throat> there's a letter from Vogt uh, who is a real institutional center, kind of central figure uh, to Maya studies, at least, Maya ethnography. Um, and there's a, a letter that he writes to, to Sheely and Friedel about one of their books, I think Forest of Kings, and, and says, you know, I, I'm not sure if these arguments, if some of these arguments are going to stand the test of time. Um, but they're they are, it's profound that you've argued them, that, that, that like Levi-Strauss's work, they are, um, they are willing to, to, to take the risk of pushing the boundaries of, of knowledge, of, of trying to undo the staid conventions that we adopt uh, as, as disciplinary thinkers, that all of us, I think, in our institutional socialization, into fields, right? Sheely was trying to unsettle some of those ideas. Um, and some of this is a, um, is a, a, you know, a hyperbolic triumphalist narrative that the minus were spinning. Uh, but I think when one really digs down um, into what Sheely was doing, I, I don't think that, that when she calls herself an edgewalker, she's being insincere. I, I think that she, she really felt herself somebody who was not quite comfortable uh, in the worlds of, of uh, Maya studies and, and uh, art history, uh, and that she was thinking about the art and artifice of that work. She, she remained an artist. If you read her, her interviews, she, she's not, she doesn't come at, at history or knowledge or myth or language from a position that's overdetermined. She, she comes at these problems um, as somebody who's like, 
who's a bricolore, who's a like a, a creative thinker, right? Who's just kind of working with the 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 shreds and patches at hand and trying to 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 make a story, to tell a story, right? She understands as an artist, she understood the artifice of scholarly work. So I think edge walking is about understanding the art and artifice uh, of our work. I think edge walking is about um, the willingness to be wrong, the willingness to take risks, uh, the willingness to push against um, the the centers of anthropological or other disciplinary attitudes, um, and the the uh, perpetual ongoing value of experimentation. Um, I think anthropology these days sometimes suffers from from taking on um, too many. Um, core ideas that are um, widely understood on a certain level or like uh, topics that are are on the front page of the New York Times, the political topics of the day. And that's important work. Those are on the front page of the New York Times for very important reasons. Uh, but at the same time, uh, anthropology gives us this license to be to to experiment with the world, to tell a different story, to work in the margins of the world, whatever those margins might be. Those margins might be very distant from the the geopolitical centers of scholarly work, uh, or or they might be right in the middle, right you know, right in some some edge in the middle, some 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 hole in the middle of our own scholarly work, our laboratories, our conversations, etc. Right. So so Sheely um, really inspired a lot of people to think about how um, I think on some level this was a creative and social project to you know and and that we ought to to think to think as we do scholarly work about the creative social world that we are also constructing I think a, a sensibility that centers or that I guess you can't center it but that that draws on a notion of edge walking is one that is self-aware in in its own critical sensibility um, and unlike, I don't want to speak with too broad a brush, um, but unlike some of the more narrowly linguistic thinkers uh, that that um, mostly have followed Chile, uh, some of whom have, have been uh, very consequential thinkers uh, and have done very interesting things uh, and have been awarded for it. Uh, but unlike some of these big stars of the Maya world who follow Sheely, like Steve Houston and, and David Stewart and, and others, um, Sheely, I, I think, thought about this as uh, an open public space of um, really kind of pushing the boundaries of the way that we think right not not just a narrow story about what a particular sign in a particular glyph means which is what most of the maya epigraphy literature looks like it, it it's incremental but it's it's at a at a very very like um narrow scale or small scale right that the kind of work that decipherment is is um piecemeal incremental you decipher sign by sign it's a slow and tedious and difficult task and what Sheely made of that world is a um a, a deeply social incredibly heightened set of of attachments among among a lot of people who some of which were looking for something to attach to right who really needed something to animate them um and, and so she produced a very weird Austin and, you know, world of, of, um, of the ancient Maya, uh, of, of people attached to the ancient Maya. Um, so that's me walking around the notion of edge walking, which is perhaps all I can do. Speaking of telling different stories. Now we've talked a lot about Sheely, but this is not a biography of Linda Sheely, as you mentioned very clearly in the book. Could you describe for listeners what you're doing here in Afterlives of Affect and maybe talk a little bit about the form of the book? Mm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. So, um, as I said, this is a somewhat experimental book. Um, I, I call it a person-centered uh, um, experimental ethnography. Um, so, uh, I, it's hard for me to compare it, um, to other person-centered books, but of course, in that space, I'm thinking about Zhao Biel's Vita, uh, centered around, uh, Katerina, uh, uh, you know, a, a patient in a mental asylum in, in, in Brazil that, that takes very seriously, uh, some of the way that ways that Katerina thinks. And I, I think about, 
uh, the work of of um, of uh, uh, Warwick Anderson on um, uh, Carlton Gajdasek, uh, a history of science that's person oriented, very storytelling, uh, that's engaged in in following a particular scientist in and and amateur anthropologist into a, a world of of biomedical science, but that takes one through um, quasi-ethnographic work in New Guinea. So, so I'm thinking alongside um, some of these kinds of experimental, semi-experimental works of person-centered ethnography and history. Uh, and also I'm thinking alongside the affect theorists and experimental anthropologists. Um, uh, and there's, a, I think, a, a really important tradition of, of experimental anthropology and, and um, uh, a, lot, a lot of uh, interest in uh, invigorating experimentalism and, and kind of play with ethnographic form today. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> so I, um, I, I started this uh, project uh, by trying to kind of break out of the somewhat more conventionally written mold of my science studies work. Uh, and in 2012, I wrote um, uh, the Animal Anthropology of Linda Shealy's Spirits essay, um, which really took me uh, into thinking uh, with Shealy about um, uh, Maya studies uh, and thinking about um, how I might write this story very differently. Right. Um, so I, I, I wrote this experimental chapter that critiqued some of the turn to the animal uh, in anthropology, thinking with Linda Sheely's own um, uh, spirit companionship. And I, I uh, uh, then wrote um, um, a piece that was um, a couple of pieces, uh, cause what the, which are in the book, uh, the chapters Sacrilege and Cosmos, early chapters in the book. Which are written um, in in vignettes. Uh, uh, Sacrilege is certainly written in a in a nod to to Katie Stewart's ordinary affects, though it takes obviously a very different kind of object. Rather than thinking about the the kind of um, um, post industrial um, anime of uh, the United States, like this, Sacrilege thinks about the the um, what it is to engage with the dead what it is to think about and think with the dead. And here I'm thinking about my, what it means for me to write um, an ethnography of, of someone I didn't know, right? Of somebody who died before I took an anthropology course, right before I took an anthropology course for the first time. Um, and uh, I, I, I thought about this as a kind of, um, as a kind of allergy, uh, as a, a term um, uh, in my work that would open up this experimental way uh, to think about forms of attachment. Um, I think that um, experimental ethnography sometimes can be um, uh, uh, really uh, distant from the world that it's evoking, right? I'm, I'm invested in a notion of evoking a world, but I, th I also want to, to evoke a world um, richly. Uh, I want to evoke a world that feels um, like an ethnographic kind of experiment, right? And I think that um, what I was trying to do was to take the pieces I had, the fragments I had of Shealy's life, the, some of the letters that I had, and to, to, to form those into a kind of evocation of her, her social world, of the, the, the world, the social and epistemic world that animated in, uh, her and, and gave sense to her work, right? Um, and to do that, I found myself um, kind of breaking from conventional forms. I was very grateful that Cultural Critique was willing to <laughs> publish a, and it, this experimental piece that I'd written, and it gave me hope that I, um, that, that I could write a book that, that was as much engaged with questions of form as it is engaged with questions of substance or the kind of critical position that it's, that it's honing. Um, and the book is written in a series of different styles. Sacrilege, the first substantive chapter after the introduction, is written in this series of vignettes that evokes um, the archive that I was wor working with. Um, I, I wrote uh, animals and Cosmos early. Uh, Cosmos um, uh, was originally written as a, um, it was originally called uh, Six Degrees of Carl Sagan. Um, and it was a, uh, a written as, a, as, as seven short vignettes that are 
uh, uh, person-centered, uh, and that trace out the connections between Linda Sheely uh, and Carl Sagan uh, and um, Lynn Margulis, who was um, Carl Sagan's first wife, and Dorian Sagan, their their son, um, uh, and and uh, thinks uh, about how Sheely had a connection with Sagan. Uh, and how Dorian Sagan at that time uh, had uh, kind of entered into conversation with anthropologists um, uh, around some of the philosophical questions that <clears throat> that we were asking at that time. Um, and I was um, I, I was on a panel with him at the AAA and I, uh, um, had this encounter with Dorian when uh, at the AAA where he was the culture at large speaker, the Society for Cultural Anthropologies, um, uh, distinguished speaker, and. At that comp, when he was at that conference, the AAA, um, uh, uh, Lynn Margulis had a had a stroke. Uh, so I was thinking about the connections between Sagan and uh, Sheely, Carl Sagan and Sheely, and I met Dorian at this conference, and and I was I was influenced on some level uh, by his work and by Lynn Margulis's work as well, uh, and I, I was just thinking about how the my object my object had imploded right like I, I was trying to use the ideas of, of thinkers uh, who were kind of systems thinkers influenced by by Margulis and people like Isabel Stengers and 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 to use their ideas to make sense out of Linda Sheely's world her world and David Friedell's world uh, and here at the AAA the strange ethnographic moment of the AAA where uh, my these worlds are colliding, and Dorian was working through um, the, the the you know the sickness or the stroke and and if the eventual death of his of his mother. Right, so uh, I was thinking about the Linda Sheely and thinking about what it means to write about the dead and to live with the dead and to attach to the dead, and I was seeing this other side of my project, this more theoretical corner of the work that I was doing uh, as struggling with the same or working through the same kinds of problems. So there was this implosion and I wrote six degrees of Carl Sagan and, and uh, don't tell the folks at Duke, but nobody wanted to publish it. No journals wanted to publish it. <laughs> and my, my wonderful, wonderful e- editor at Duke, Liz Alt, who's an extraordinary person and was a great guide into like how to make an experimental book happen. Um, uh, you know, Liz said, well, you know, this piece, uh, is it was it was too it it was evocative but it didn't quite know what it evoked right and um, so I built the piece out uh, in a sense and so if you read Cosmos uh, up until there are these three asterisks asterisks um, in each of the section uh, and the original form of that chapter this is the key to the chapter the original form to the chapter is that it has an experimental vignette in each section followed by the kind of um, e- extrapolation, the explication that I wrote years later in order to make it into a real, a real chapter that somebody would publish. Um, so I was, I was playing with form through this period. I was thinking with folks like Stuart, I, you know, not actively, I don't know her, but I, you know, um, uh, you know, more, more uh, direct colleagues um, who were engaged in experimentalism, um, uh, Stuart McLean uh, and others, Anand Pandyan, um, you know, that, that kind of corner of an experimental ethnography uh, and thinking about what would happen if we did that, not with the kind of conventional objects of ethnographic knowledge, but, but with the, with the, the social world that, that surrounded the the, the ancient Maya uh, th- through Linda Sheely. So, um, so those were the the initial experiments. But each of the chapters actually reads a little differently in terms of its form, structure, and style of experimentation. Some of them are m- more scholarly. Some of them are more playful. Not that those are not that I would ever hold those as opposed. <laughs> Yeah, I'd like to zoom in maybe on one chapter. In chapter five, maybe you could introduce listeners just generally to chapter five before we get into some specifics. Um, so, so chapter five uh, is titled "Genius." Um, it uh, is uh, an, a kind of exploration of the idea of genius. Um, Sheely was was called a genius uh, by a number of her colleagues. Um, uh, and I was attracted to that idea, uh, not because I have some grandiose 
notion that there is such a thing as a genius, right? Uh, but because I think when I think what we do as ethnographers is to take seriously what people say about the world, and if the people around Linda were calling her a genius, if people like Gillette Griffin, who was an art curator um, at at Princeton, uh, it, it call, called her a genius, there, the chapter starts, I think with Gillette Griffin calling her a genius uh, and others, I think Andrea Stone um, and, and Griffin saying that he, he was friends with Einstein and he gives Linda Sheely the intellectual edge. Uh, I, I wanted to explore what it meant to think about Sheely as a genius. Um, and I was immediately drawn uh, uh, to the, the ways that she was attached with other kind of big thinkers like, like Carl Sagan. They, they, corresponded to some extent. And I was drawn to some more passing um, correspondences between Sheely and, and Levi-Strauss, Claude Levi-Strauss, uh, who wrote uh, Sheely and, and some of her immediate colleagues to, to, to laud uh, their, their developments in, in Maya studies. The fact that they'd taken this 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 body of of inscriptions that that scholars for decades had thought about as as n- maybe not being writing their arguments uh, about whether it was writing at all. Uh, and the, the most popular position um, in the 50s and the 60s, uh, owing to, uh, to J. Eric S. Thompson and Sylvanus Morley and other, other um, kind of old dons of Maya studies, uh, was that this was um, um, a body of astrological, you know, rebuses that were used by astronomer priests in their, in their own kind of astrological uh, thinking. And, and some of those inside Maya studies say that, that Thompson was trying to think outside the, the, um, the horrors of World War, which he'd seen. They were using this as a kind of um, uh, space to project their own fantasies of, the, of a utopic other world that's more peaceful than the, the horrors that they'd experienced. Um, and, and Sheely uh, and, and her, co- her colleagues instead uh, build this other kind of world. And she's taken up as, as this, this, this profound thinker. Uh, but I, I, I struggle uh, as, an, as an anthropologist still um, with taking seriously a notion of genius. So, so I use the connection between Sheely and Levi-Strauss uh, to think about whether um, uh, this is, in fact, a, a really valuable internal myth within ancient Maya studies, right? What we're talking about uh, is the, the, this kind of, um, this work of bricolage as, as Levi-Strauss calls it, right? This creative work with the, the shreds and patches at hands with the, you know, with the received signifiers and signifies that the terms that we get in our everyday life, we stitch them together. There is no, prof- there is no truly original thought. There is no truly original idea. Everything is kind of bricolage. Um, and Levi-Strauss and, and later Derrida uh, uh, are, are pretty invested at, at moments uh, in thinking about um, the opposition between uh, this kind of work of bricolage and the, the work of, of kind of totalizing knowledge, the, the scientist or the engineer, the engineer opposed to the, to the bricolore. Um, and uh, what I wanted to do was take seriously the um, Mayanist's myth of decipherment and myth of genius, or story of decipherment and story of genius, uh, and I wanted to take it seriously by by um, uh, kind of working Sheely and and Levi Strauss's ideas together, taking um, taking uh, my central text of Levi Strauss in that in that chapter is his introduction to the work of Marcel Mauss, um, which is one of Levi Strauss's in my reading. I haven't read all of the Levi Straussian corpus, but uh, in my reading, it's one of his his stranger essays and one of his more fascinating essays. Uh, and it's the essay that um, becomes this cornerstone of, of Derrida's and other post-structuralists thinking, um, uh, you know, in structure, sign and play in the discourse of the human sciences, Derrida takes, takes this idea of the, the, the engineer and says, this is a myth of the bricolores making. So what happens when we, when we think uh, with the the Mayanists who are studying ancient Maya myth about the myths that they're telling that they're storying about themselves, um, I don't uh, get so so technical as to be engaged in a structural analysis of, of anything. Um, 
though though I edged toward it at other moments in my work. Um, but I, I I wanted to take seriously Levi Strauss's uh, reading of Mos um, uh, as a truly remarkable essay that thinks about how Mos's work on religion uh, is not a distant critical work. We tend to read if you read Mos, um, the book you're most likely to read is The Gift. Right, uh, and the book that is that sticks in my head uh, in a way that that undoes how I think uh, is really general theory of magic. General theory of magic is uh, the text that introduces, I think, uh, the idea of mana. Uh, also, is, is engaged with the idea of of how um, these these oceanic concepts that Moses is drawing, you know, into French sociological thought. Uh, he's thinking abstractly about um, uh, mana in particular, uh, and Levi Strauss is attached to the way that Mos uh, is not just thinking about mana, which is a uh, you know an oceanic term for a sacred impersonal force, right? Uh, and it has all of these different meanings and all this kind of ambiguity to it, this built-in ambiguity, right? So. Um, what Levi-Strauss does, what, perhaps one of the most fascinating things that I find in that piece, is that Levi-Strauss thinks about Moses' reading of mana as an enactment of mana, as an extension of mana, that, that, that Mos himself is caught by the, the sacred the force, the sacred force of mana, that what, that what he's doing as he thinks about and tries to rewrite uh, the way that people think about magic in this text that is kind of an uh, an ethnological like a 19th century ethnological text it reads as much like like 19th century ethnologists as anything right it's generalizing it's grand it's it's big and in it bigger than the gift in terms of its its scope but but Levi-Strauss sees clearly uh, that that most is extending the magic uh, of that he's describing that that there's this performative quality to the the analytical work that he's doing, uh, and Levi Strauss, you know, says when we think about what mana is and mana does, we are, we are we are thinking about this floating signifier, this this term, right? That that has a surface an an excess of meaning, right? That that can't ever quite be pinned down. And Levi Strauss here says we need this excess of meaning in order to be able to even communicate. Right. That when I say God and you say God, we mean something different, but we can still communicate through that term. Right. So a floating signifier is this glue that keeps language and really language in its communicative interpersonal uh, performance. Uh, it, It keeps it working. It enables us to have this conversation, right? The words that I say mean different things to me than they mean to you, right? Uh, but certain terms really have that that profound range. Uh, and really for, for Levi-Strauss, following most uh, organized thought. Um, and so I'm thinking uh, with most uh, that that mana that to write about you know these kinds of ideas is to continue them is to enact them. So I'm thinking about what it means for Sheely to um, to to kind of build on and draw on these classic Maya concepts that are um, you know very different from their context of use. Right when she writes about the why the the spirit companion, uh, or when she writes about um, the closely related idea of the how the Lord or, or any of these like core uh, terms that they're working to decipher and struggling to decipher. Uh, what they're trying to do is to, to partake of uh, that a reconstructed version of that, that ancient Maya, that ancient Maya world. So Levi-Strauss helps me to think about that continuous effort to reconstruct a world that came before us and to which we are indebted, whether it's a reinvention, as is the case in something like, you know, so-called decipherment, or, or whether it's our continuous work of memory and, and transformation of the, 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 the world we have around us through, through the terms we, we have, we have at hand, right? That this is, not um, uh, a, a series of oppositions, a series of external analyses, but instead a, um, this kind of continuous process of, of reimagining. And, and, and once you think down that line, I think once you follow a Levi-Straussian, early Levi-Straussian logic, it's not, it's not hard to start to think about how this is a, um, a spiritual or religious 
practice, right? Uh, a practice of, of hermeneutically receiving ideas and transforming them into something new that we offer to those who come after us, uh, of taking the floating signifiers that we have around us and, and offering some uh, sense to them with the, with the knowledge that others will, will, will find a different sense. Um, so uh, I, I think about Levi-Strauss and Scheele together here uh, as similar kinds of thinkers and thinkers that had a, a brief contact contact. Um, and I, I, I kind of am fascinated by a moment in, in um, Levi-Strauss's introduction where he reads uh, the floating signifier um, uh, in relation to uh, a kind of divine speech and understanding um, uh, uh, something that I think hasn't been, been fully um, kind of worked out, and I'll leave it to those who, who are 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 more dedicated to the history of structuralism than I am, uh, to work out some of those implications. But I find it very very exciting to to play and think with, um, yeah. So that wasn't that was a rambling discussion of the chapter, but <laughs> that it circles around some of those ideas and the myth of genius. It's absolutely brilliant. This book is such a thrilling read. It's so wonderful. Uh, there is one tradition on the New Books Network that I like to uphold at the end of all my interviews, which is, what are you working on now? So I am um, continuing uh, to work in the history of Maya studies. Uh, I'm becoming um, perhaps a bit more historical these days in terms of the way that I'm thinking about the history of anthropology. Um, and I'm, you know, through my work on Shealy and hieroglyphic decipherment, I became um, pretty interested uh, in um, the, the work of ethnographers in Highland Chiapas in the mid 20th century. Uh, so uh, I'm finally, so starting in 2000. 17, uh, I, I finally began archival work <clears throat> that was on the history of my ethnography. Um, uh, particularly, I'm writing a history of the Harvard Chiapas Project, uh, which I, I mentioned Evan Vogt earlier as an influence on Chile, um, uh, who argued, who kind of drew on a certain tradition of Maya studies uh, to, to make this argument that um, the, the community of Sinacantan on the outskirts or the, the neighbor to San Cristobal de las Casas in Chiapas, that Sinacantan was this closed corporate community, what, what you know, Eric Wolf and others call this closed corporate community. Uh, and I'm interested in how, how Vote came to that community. He, he was from the American Southwest. Uh, New Mexico, um, and he'd done work in the Amer- in the Southwest. Uh, but in um, the mid 1950s, after getting tenure at Harvard, uh, he turned to uh, to ancient Maya studies. Was invited, or, or contemporary Maya studies, excuse me, Maya ethnography, um, and he started ethnographic fieldwork and a, a, hu- what, a huge um, uh, ethnographic field school. In 1957, uh, the field work in 57, the field school started in 60. Um, so I'm uh, writing right now about the relationship between the Mexican state uh, and Harvard anthropology uh, in the 1950s and the 1960s. Um, uh, Mexican anthropology uh, was transforming at the time. Um, in the 1940s, after the Pazcuaro Conference of 1940. Which introduces a, a notion of indigenismo, um, pan-indigenous thought uh, in the Americas, uh, and gives a kind of anthropological charge to Latin American states. The Mexican state in 1948 establishes um, the Instituto Nacional Indigenista, the INI, um, and they they go to Chiapas and they work uh, to uh, as a quasi-settler colonial project to, to draw uh, the Saltal and Sotzil speakers of uh, Highland Chiapas into the Mexican state, into identification with the Mexican state. At the same time, uh, or shortly thereafter, um, they, some of the, the major figures in, in um, Mexican anthropology invite Evan Vogt uh, and some others, the, their Chicago anthropologists working in Highland Chiapas with the Man and Nature Project. Um, so they, they start these what will become major, huge ethnographic collaborative projects, right? Uh, and they have this kind of complex, ambivalent relationship to these Mexican development administrative officials, some of whom are anthropologists, um, one of whom uh, is Alfonso Villarrojas, who worked with Robert Redfield and his classic work on Chancon, Chancon earlier. So 
I'm writing about the relationship between the Mexican state and uh, Harvard anthropology uh, in the in the 50s and the 60s, um, and I'm I'm thinking about how the field school uh, instituted ideas about the neutrality, including the cultural neutrality of method. Um, starting to think about whether it might make sense to make an argument about ethnographic method as being this, you know, what what um, you know uh, some of the kind of uh, critical um, uh, uh, the thinkers around uh, race in, in in anthropology call a, a white public space. Uh, whether the kind of um, training in ethnographic methods, the kind of scientific neutrality, the objectivity that it cultivates uh, in students, um, is is an I'm thinking about whether it's an understudied part of the history of anthropology and what it might mean to start in big by looking at the history of anthropology in big collaborative fieldwork projects um, and also thinking about method rather than thinking about theory. So, so, so much history of anthropology is about the history of ideas, history of theory, maybe a little bit of social history. Um, but right now I'm writing, I, I just wrote an essay that's about um, the relationship between the ENI uh, and Harvard. And I'm, I'm writing an essay right now about Evan Vogt's first major purchase for the fieldwork project, which is a, a land, which was a Land Rover. He bought a, a Land Rover or off-road vehicle in, the, in 1957 when he started the project because Chicago had one and he wanted one too. And so I'm, I'm touching like a little bit of the automobilities and a little bit of the infrastructure literatures uh, to, to rethink the history of Maya ethnography in the highlands of Chiapas. Wonderful. The book is Afterlives of Affect, published with Duke University Press in 2020. Professor Matthew C. Watson, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Adam. It's been a real pleasure to be able to, to join you today.